Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Nā mihi nui, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. Tonight we are carrying on with our celebration of the annual Research Honours Aotearoa from the Royal Society Te Aparangi. Later in the show I'll talk tuatara genetics and environmental DNA with Neil Gemmell. But first up, David Tipani Leach from the Eastern Institute of Technology has won the 2020 Tahanui Arangi Award. The award recognises inventions of things or processes that make a significant impact. David led a team which applied mātauranga Māori to create the wahakura, a flax sleeping bassinet, to address the problem of sudden unexpected death in infancy, or sudi. been around for a long time. It used to be called SIDS, and before that it was called cot death. So it's been around for a good old while. It became quite marked in the 60s, 70s and 80s. We kind of got a handle on it here in New Zealand with the cot death study, um, Ed Mitchell and the Cotter study in the late 80s. We had a uh, national prevention program here that got out there and turned all babies over from lying face down to face up. Didn't seem to do much in the Māori community. The rates of SIDS didn't seem to change very much. On the basis of that, we got together something called the Māori SIDS Prevention Program. And so we changed the message if you like, from turning babies over to trying to take a wider approach to the message and talking about SIDS and information distribution, all that sort of thing. We had to deal with grief. We had to deal with the idea that the main message coming out of paediatrics and out of Plunkett was get those babies out of your bed, Um, no bed sharing, that sort of thing. And so, anyhow, we worked with that, and the deaths began to fall. For about five years, they were falling, and then they flattened out. And so in the flattened-out years, which was the middle of the 2000s, we thought, gosh, you know, we have to do something new, something else. And so that something else was, given that the main risk at the time was bed-sharing if there was smoking during the pregnancy. So those two often thought of as separate risks, but if you put them together then they are particularly um, nasty as a risk dyad for what had now become called SUDI, Sudden Unexpected Death in Infancy. We looked at it and we thought, what are we going to do? It's all about smoking um, and bed sharing um, together, and so smoking's too hard to do, so we need to do something about bed sharing. And so we came up with this idea around because all the messages at the time around the world and the international sphere were safe sleep environments, we thought, why can you not create a safe sleep environment in a shared bed? And that was where the idea came from. Why can't you have a safe sleep environment in a shared bed? Uh, And so we played with that idea, 
and we came up with this idea of a woven bassinet that was highly portable that could slip in between the parents um, at night um, and people would feel that they were A, bed sharing and they didn't have to change their behaviour, B, that they were doing all the nice things like being close to baby and goo-gooing and gargaring all night long and easy for breastfeeding and putting baby back into a safe sleep space. Um, but because it was made of flax, we kind of also marketed it with the idea that it was a return to a traditional behaviour. And, of course, you know, the, we're talking about the mid-2000s um, here and and anything that comes into the Māori community that smacks of um, traditionalism or going back to the old ways of doing things, of course, is, is looked upon with favour. And so I wasn't surprised to see that this thing took off. Mothers loved it. They loved being close to baby. They loved having the smell of flax around. They loved this idea that we were um, doing something that the old people said we, we should do. They loved the idea that nobody was saying to, to them, don't do this, don't do that. It was that all the messages were flipped around and presented in a positive light. And so it got a bit of movement. Of course, they weren't easy to make and they weren't easy to procure. Um, and so whilst there was demand, it started off very slowly. In fact, well, I mean, we ended up inventing a plastic version of it. Is that the Peppy Pod? So that was yes. sparked by the original Flax version? Absolutely. One of our colleagues who actually spotted it in the plastic box shop, her name's Stephanie Cohen and from Christchurch, we'd already had the idea of a Peppy Pod because we were trying to figure out what can we do that looks like a wahakura and does the same things but, you know, is easy to procure. Um, and so we called it the Peppy Pod even though we didn't know what it was. And when she spotted this plastic box, we said, yep, that's it, that'll do, that's our Peppy Pod, let's go for it. And, of course, um, she was in Christchurch at the time and it was the time of the earthquakes. And Stephanie was faced, you know, in a very short period of time with 1,000 to 1,500 babies that had no safe place to sleep. So whilst we started the Peppy Pod off as a foodie prevention thing, it ended up being a very utilitarian makeshift bed for a whole lot of Christchurch families whose lives were disrupted by the earthquake. She ordered them in from overseas. She had people um, knitting and sewing and doing all sorts of things. And so it was Stephanie's work with the Peppy Pod that allowed us to start the um, Safe Sleep programs. Um, and the first one we did here was here at um, Hawke's Bay DHB. And this, the idea behind the Safe Sleep program was that if you were seen by a midwife or anybody in that antenatal field and you were in any way at risk, particularly around smoking and pregnancy, then you would be offered one of these safe sleep devices. Um, and so that was the whole idea of the safe sleep program. You got the device, you got some education about safe sleep, you got a little bit of extra attention. And so that was a safe sleep program. It, it started to move around the DHVs and it probably took four years before just about all the DHBs had a version of the Safe Sleep Program running. And between the years 2009 to 2015, we were able to show a 30% drop in infant mortality across the country. That's significant. It is significant. It was, it was big. It was an ecological study, so it wasn't that we could 
absolutely say that it was because of the Safe Sleep Programme. But nothing else was going on. You know, we hadn't invented a new antibiotic. There was no new immunisation. There was nothing else new in the environment. And the deaths were dropping in the areas where we were distributing the most of these pepipods and wahakura. But you haven't eliminated the risk completely, have you? There are still unexpected infant deaths. Absolutely there are. And no, you're dead right, we haven't eliminated the risk. What has happened now is that we have another flattening. For the past two, possibly three years, again, that decrease in um, Sudi deaths has halted. And what I think has happened is that we have come to the end of the low-hanging fruit. So where do you go from here then? Yes, that's a good question. And, and you know, the, the question of risk in this day and age, yes, it's all tied up around, you know, the ones that you can pick out easily as smoking and, and, and bed sharing. But, but where you find these things, of course, and again, not surprisingly, is in deprived communities where things are a little bit hard up. People smoke because they're stressed. People bed share because they don't have room, because they're under stress. And so what we see is that these deaths are still in that part of the community. And the argument is that with access to antenatal services being the requirement to be able to access these things and, of course, ongoing use of a pepipod or a wahakura uh, being the thing that saves the day, basically these things are not happening. So we have now got a part of our community that we are unable to penetrate. And so we have started, and this is the interesting thing about the whole wahakura program, is that we have started, rather than just giving wahakuras out to those who you can identify with a risk factor, then what we're doing now is, is that we are embarking on a program of teaching people how to make these things. Ah. Yes. Yeah, so we're trying to do it. We're now trying to be even more holistic. Is that the word? Or all-rounded? We've got this organisation over here that we've just started called um, the Whare Porter. Um, te Whare Porter o Hinete. Whare Porter means University School of Learning. Hinete, where you were, is the old deity of, of weaving and who, interestingly, is also the deity of pregnancy, childbirth, and infant raising. So, not surprisingly, you might think of this as a women's business or women's health clinic under the old way that things happen in pre-colonial times. So, again, it's a return to the old thing. Um, Women are coming in. They end up weaving in a six-week program all the things that you need in pregnancy. Um, of course, the hardest one to do is the wahakura. That's the last thing they make. And the easiest one to do is the um, the umbilical tie. So that's what they make first. But the wahakura has been really interesting because it just takes the space, if you like. It, you know, you're, you're doing this thing. You're getting ready for pregnancy. You're looking around. You're buying nappies and bottles and all that sort of thing. And then somebody brings along something made out of flax. Hmm. And, and everybody goes, oh, wow. And so the wahakura, our experiences with the wahakura is that people use them, babies sleep in them, babies grow up, 
Babies never give up on them. They end up playing in them. They end up being the toy box. They end up being the security blanket. And babies, we see uh, infants at two and three years of age walking around dragging their wahakura behind them full of all their stuff. It's kind of like, here's my little space. This is my safe space. Mm. Um, And as soon as I hop in here, I'm okay. The other interesting thing about them, is, of course, is that their attractiveness is not limited to Māori women, of course, um, in the same way that Kiwis, you know, Kiwis love ketes. Sophisticated women have a kete. Um, in rem weather, they buy really expensive and nice kete because that's what we do in New Zealand. Mm. And, and this is what's beginning to happen now with the wahakura, is that Pākehā women are looking for wahakura. I mean, it just makes sense. It's the pavlova, it's the buzzy bee, it's joining those things, part of Kiwi culture. They've now started using these things in Australia, in Aboriginal communities, not so much um, wahakura because they don't have flats over there, um, but they've been using peppy pods, but we've been doing some work over there and encouraging them to find a Aboriginal version of the wahakura and see if there is a way that they can make this thing happen, not as a plastic object, but with something traditional from their culture, push this thing along. I sent three wahakura earlier this year to uh, Bristol University, to a colleague over there who's working in hard-up communities, and he's fascinated. He's looking for a cultural equivalent in England of this bed-sharing device that they might be able to use in communities over there who have high sooty rates. I'll say the word, but I don't want to say it too loudly. But there are two bits of genius in this idea. And the first is, why can't you have a safe sleeping environment in a shared bed? So that's something that just hadn't been thought of before. And then the other little bit of cleverness around the wahakura is, and if you make this safe sleeping device so that it brings to people all the feelings of tradition and health and naturalness and going back to maybe traditional ways or going back to the earth sort of thing. If you can combine those two things together, then you've got a winner. And that's what the wahakura has been. It certainly does seem to have been a winner. So congratulations for that. You've probably saved quite a few lives by now. We may have done. We may well have done. That must bring you a great deal of satisfaction. It does. I think that, interestingly, my colleague Ed Mitchell, Ed Mitchell was the original SIDS guy, um, the SIDS guru around the world, really, and he has joined on very happily with our program and has been part of pushing this program, and I think it's because he has recognised the tale of the SIDS epidemic and he's wanted to try and help address it. And so I'm still kind of feeling like that. Yes, we've had the wahakura um, and we've got the wahakura and it's an ongoing thing now. I I think the wahakura will be around forever now. I think it's become a part of our culture and it's not going away. But actually it's not enough. What we need really to address is we need to recognise that the the core problem that we're looking at with Sudi is poverty and the 
behavioural risks that come when you live in poverty and the things around you are, are not going well. And so you get things like cigarette smoking, you get things like alcohol abuse, you get things like overcrowded housing, you get things like being cut off from antenatal care. You get all those sorts of things, and when you get all these things, disaster hits. Maybe this new government will be a little bit more progressive, and maybe it will begin to do what it said it was going to do in its last term, and that is to begin to address the social determinants of health, because that's where we need to go, really, to address Sudi. But the Wahakura is an iconic change in behaviour that we have effected in this country and that has become normalised. The interesting thing, that we introduced this thing in 2005. We struggled with it for three, four, five years. By 2010, it was out there in many ways. Sort of by 2015, it was out there enough to have dropped the infant mortality rate. And here we are in 2020, it's just a normal part of our behaviour and we still can't make enough of them. So, you know, people across the country are, are making wahakura. The demand is always bigger than the supply, and that's been one of the problems. But, but hey, if you've got people demanding something that is good for you, then we can't be complaining about that. Thanks, David. David Tipani-Leach is with the Eastern Institute of Technology and is the winner of the 2020 Tahanui Arangi Award. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori ki te reo erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance and this is Our Changing World on RNZ. The Hutton Medal is given to a researcher whose outstanding work has significantly advanced understanding and that is definitely true for this year's winner, the University of Otago's Neil Gemmell. On a slightly dodgy Skype line, I began by asking Neil to tell me what he does. It's quite complicated. I've, I've got sort of fingers in lots of pies. But I'm a geneticist at a basic level and have a particular interest in the evolution of mostly animals and what their relationships are to each other. And I'm also interested in population genetics. So that's trying to understand, if you like, the relationships among individuals within populations how closely related they are to each other, how individuals move between populations and those sorts of things. And then sort of tying those things all together has been this sort of theme of genetics and genomics. So using modern technologies to unravel those relatively unknown relationships among living things. Well, we'll come to some of those things. I have to say I was just checked on the RNZ website before to remind myself of the breadth of things about which you've been interviewed on RNZ and you've been on RNZ a great many times. And a few years ago, you were one of our go-to people when CRISPR really hit the scene and the whole idea of gene drives came about. So can you remind us what's CRISPR, what's a gene drive, in, and what you think about those two things? Yes, that was a heady time a couple of years ago as those technologies really started to emerge. So CRISPR is a bacterial gene system which is designed to... Uh, identify viral DNA and stop viruses uh, from attacking those bacteria, but particularly bacteriophage, which is a type of virus that infects bacteria. So if you like, it's a bacterial immune system. And a few years ago, some very, very smart people, Manuel Carpenter and uh, Jennifer Dudner, showed that you could use this or harness this technology to actually get it to cut or 
identify gene sequences in other species, including a variety of plants and animals and, and also humans. And they won the Nobel Prize for that work this year. But CRISPR in and of itself is really a tool that can cut DNA, and that's pretty much all it does. But there are other things that you can do with it by modifying it so that you can actually cut and replace particular genes. So people have modified this uh, CRISPR-Cas9, which is the enzyme that enables it to identify and then cut the DNA. They've modified that system so that you can actually replace genes in particular parts of the DNA with, with some level of precision. And so that got people very excited about the idea of gene therapies, of potentially trying to correct genetic mutations that give rise to uh, some form of heritable disease. And also there has been ideas about using these tools to modify plants and animals uh, for purposes which we might consider to be useful for ourselves, whether it be to develop a mutation in, a, in an animal so that it produces more milk or uh, has higher fertility or, or so forth. And then where I came in, was sort of on the flip side of that, could we use those technologies to deliberately make some organisms subfertile or uh, have lower fitness so that uh, we could actually introduce those mutations into populations so they would uh, self-regulate themselves, effectively drive themselves to extinction through having these, these mutations which affected their fertility. And the way that was proposed to be done is using a quite complex system called gene drives, which link... CRISPR uh, systems and the CAS9 uh, enzymes and, and related enzymes into a single sort of uh, genetic construct. They make a GMO with the animal that produces both the guide RNA to identify and cut the DNA and also produces the enzyme that enables that cut. And what people had shown with these CRISPR-Cas9 gene drive systems is that you could effectively introduce a mutation which would uh, pass on to almost every individual in a population. So if you introduce an individual that carried that mutation, it would then pass that on to its progeny and its progenies would pass it on to all its progeny and so forth. So uh, effectively you'd have a wave promulgation of this genetic mutation through a population. And if you could do that, then you could control populations. So has it delivered on any of this possibility? Well, what are we now? So we were talking about this stuff about 2017, weren't we, Alison? So yeah. three years on... Uh, for insects, it's looking pretty promising. There's lots of refinement that's taken place, and that's important because, as it was originally described, there were some concerns about our ability to control and stop those gene drives if we wanted to. And so if they couldn't be regulated and they couldn't be controlled, then they pose some level of risk. But now people have figured out ways to uh, harness them a little bit better uh, for insects, there are now cage trials going on in Italy, or there were at the beginning of this year, with the notion that they would produce mosquitoes that would only produce uh, male offspring, and those male offspring uh, would dominate the population. If you don't have any females in the population, then it'll relatively rapidly go extinct. And the other thing that's good about that is that it's the female mosquitoes that do the biting and the blood, blood sucking. So if you've removed the female mosquitoes, then you've removed effectively the major vehicle for transmission of those diseases that people are trying to control. It's not the mosquitoes themselves so much that people worry about, it's the diseases they carry. And so those experiments are ongoing and there's an ongoing conversation uh, from a group called Target Malaria about how they might deploy those now out into Western Africa and other parts of the world. And they have a sort of a five to ten year plan around how they might 
bring that technology uh, into the wild and actually use it to control mosquito populations and therefore malaria in those places. But mammals, which is what we were talking about, so mammal, mammalian pests like rats and stoats and possums, which are New Zealand's sort of big three, that's a lot further off. And so far, there is not a gene drive system that works on mammals. There's something that gets pretty close that can uh, change the inheritance patterns of genes uh, within the female germline, but there isn't actually, to the best of my knowledge, a system that is working yet as a gene drive in mammals. And so we still are looking for um, solutions to our pest problem. We're still considering genetic solutions, but of course we are still a, a nation which has a relatively strong disdain for the notion of genetic modification, or at least that's the best we understand it based on recent surveys. So would it be fair to say you remain optimistic about its potential, but it's not going to deliver a solution for predator-free New Zealand anytime soon? I think that's pretty much right. I, I remain optimistic that genetic technologies will be one of the tools that will help us control some of these pest species whether it's the sort of gene drive technology that we've talked about uh, that will be the solution, I don't know. There may be alternatives that are coming through. So there's a very interesting system called a toxin-antitoxin system where you effectively make a genetically modified animal which carries a toxin and antitoxin system. So when it breeds with like, uh, those individuals are healthy and they produce healthy offspring. But when they breed with individuals that don't carry the antitoxin system, then that's lethal. And depending on how many of those individuals you have in a population, you can actually get quite high levels of population control. And uh, that, that work's coming out now in, in insects, and there's some work coming out in some other systems too, I think. And that, that could be quite promising. We've also spoken in the past about an idea I had, which was called the Trojan female technique. And yes, I was going to ask you about that. How's that going, Neil? Slowly. I'd kind of given up on it, I'll be honest, because uh, it's hard. So the basic idea is very sound. So we know that there are these mutations in mitochondrial DNA. So this is a, a DNA that um, encodes many parts of our uh, cellular energy system. And it's inherited from mother to offspring only through the maternal line. So mum will pass it on to her sons, uh, but they then don't pass it on to their offspring. Uh, the daughters will pass it on to their offspring. And what we discovered is that there are mutations in that molecule, which is this, this maternally inherited molecule, which affect males but not the females. And those mutations seem to affect particularly reproduction and, and fertility. So there's quite a few targets we've found now that affect male fertility. And so you can get the situation where mum passes on these mutations, daughter's fine, but the sons are subfertile or infertile. And so we wondered if we could use that as a tool to control populations. And we showed both through mathematical modelling and also empirical experiment that, yes, you could get some level of control, although it was relatively modest. And the nice thing about it was that it wasn't uh, genetic modification in any shape or form. It was, it was using mutations that occur naturally, but you were just introducing them at a higher frequency than normally occurs. And so we thought it was really a neat idea, but then the question became, how transferable was it? And could you find these sorts of mutations in most natural populations that you might want to control? And we went looking for those mutations, and indeed you do find mutations that uh, compromise male fertility in, you know, flies and in hares and a variety of other species. We haven't found any in rats here uh, in, 
in Aotearoa, New Zealand yet, and we've been looking at it for wasps and a number of other systems too, and we didn't find any mutations. And so we, we figured that the only way you could really make this work is if you could directly edit the mitochondrial DNA, and it turned out that even with the latest CRISPR technologies, mitochondrial DNA is one of these parts of our genome that's really, really hard to target, and it's really, really hard to edit. And so we started wondering about whether we could make these things synthetically and then inject them, and I had a bunch of ideas, but most of it became quite difficult, technically challenging, and we were back to that GMO board again. So we were doing something that would require genetic modification of an organism, and you know that might not be as socially acceptable as the original Trojan female technique. And then in June this year, a group out of uh, University of Washington and MIT have shown for the first time new bacterial systems. So this is not related to CRISPR-Cas, but a completely new bacterial system that can edit mitochondrial DNA. And so that's pretty exciting. It can only edit it in a very specific way. So it can change a, a C, a cytosine, into a T, a thiamine. So that's quite limited in its applicability. But if we go back 10 years when we first described the CRISPR-Cas systems, uh, they also had some limitations and they have been engineered and modified in ways that we I never could have dreamed of. So this year, I am optimistic that we could start thinking about directly manipulating DNA using these bacterial systems to introduce mitochondrial mutations, which might affect uh, the fertility of males, but not females. And so the Trojan female technique rises um, just to mix metaphors like a phoenix from the ashes. I look forward to following that story and seeing where it goes. Let's talk about something completely different. The Tuatara genome, you've been involved in the sequencing of the Tuatara genome. This was a labour of love. It took a great many years. It was done on the smell of an oily rag, but you finally achieved it. What were the standout things for you about that genome? So that was a labour of love, and it wasn't something I, I sort of sought to do. It, it sort of it came about through a variety of serendipitous opportunities. And there was a consortium overseas who particularly wanted to sequence Tuatara. So it's one of these sort of cornerstone species in terms of our understanding of vertebrate evolution, but particularly amniote evolution. So your lizards and snakes and Tuatara and mammals and birds and a variety of other things. And these folks seem to have no real concept of what they're going to sequence, where they're going to get it from. And in particular, they didn't have any sort of cultural guidance about uh, these genomes. And so I was at this, at this meeting and we ended up having a conversation and I, I started making some phone calls about uh, Tuatara with some friends at the Department of Conservation and some other places. And there seemed to be a general feeling that we could or should do this, particularly if somebody else was going to pay for it. So we, we, we started pulling things together and in particular we started looking at developing the relationships with the iwi who hold Kaitiaki uh, over Tuatara and various parts of the country. And we established a relationship with Ngāti Waiwi in the far north, and they were relatively keen on the idea of sequencing the genome, principally because we explained to them the value that, that would have in helping us to undertake the sort of conservation genetic work that was needed to better manage the populations of Tuatara that exist. So recognising that these are now all limited populations on offshore islands, that there may be opportunity for the uh, prospect of them to be uh, inbreeding for population uh, viability, that is the ability for the population to persist, uh, to, to be decreasing. They're sensitive to 
climate change because they produce unusually males at higher temperature versus females. So like many reptiles, they have temperature-dependent sex determination. But in this species, uh, higher temperatures leads to more males. And so if the ground starts getting warmer, then Tuatara are going to have very significantly male-biased populations, and that's going to be bad for their long-term persistence. So there were, there were all these issues that were emerging uh, in terms of the conservation of the species, and we explained that by sequencing the genome, we'd have this roadmap which would help guide our, our future population, genetic population genomic work. And so they agreed to partner with us on that, and we sequenced the genome over a, over a space of eight years, uh, most of the international partners who had offered to help sequence the Tuatara genome balked at its size. It's quite big. It's five gigabase pairs, which is 60-odd percent bigger than human. Um, and big genomes are expensive to sequence. And so the people who thought this was going to be relatively simple and easy uh, sort of walked away from it uh, when they realised how much money and time was going to be involved. But fortunately... We had some funding here in New Zealand, and we had some partnerships with Illumina, one of the sequencing companies, and a number of organisations that now no longer exist, uh, one of which was called the Alan Wilson Centre, uh, which was one of the Centres of Research Excellence, and another one called New Zealand Genomics Limited, who were uh, charged with developing genomic technologies and, and, and making those services available across the country. So, so neither of them exist anymore, but both of them were sort of integral to getting to Atara genome going. And so we sequenced it, and that took quite a few years, and then we put it together, and that took quite a few more years, and then we started analysing and asking questions, which is actually what you just asked me. So what were the big insights? So the first thing is that the genome's big, and the question you might ask is, why is it big? And the answer is, uh, it has an awful lot of repetitive DNA. So most genomes have these repetitive sequences. They're often tandemly repeated sequences, or they can be interspersed, but they're they're often being considered to be junk. They, they probably aren't because they're too ubiquitous. And so we discovered a lot of new repeat sequences in Tuatara, and we also found some that were known, and they're known in mammals, but they're actually very rare in reptiles, and that was kind of interesting because in mammals they seem to be involved with making sure genes are regulated appropriately and sort of on and off switches that regulate genes. And we found an awful lot of those in Tuatara, and that sort of suggests that they have quite a lot of regulatory complexity. We found proteins and genes that are associated with cellular protection. So one of the things that quite long-lived animals tend to have is quite a lot of these genes that protect them against free radical damage. So it stops damage to the DNA, stops damage to the proteins. And Tuatara are long-lived. They live over 100 years, we think. And they have a lot of these genes called selenoproteins, which seem to protect them against oxidative damage, more so than we do, and more so indeed than any other vertebrate that's been looked at so far. And we also found genes that were associated with their ability to, to operate across quite a high range of temperatures. So Tuatara are unusual as a reptile in that they can operate at relatively low active body temperatures. So I think that the mean active body temperature is about 13 degrees Celsius, which is cold for a reptile, and they can be active as low as 5 degrees Celsius. By active, that probably just means conscious. But that's extraordinary, and they have a bunch of genes uh, called transient receptor proteins, or TRPs, which are probably involved in their ability to operate at these low temperatures. 
So that was that was kind of cool. I think the other thing that for me that was exciting was to look at the population relationships. Tuatara have been variously described as a single species, and then there have been two species, one on the Brothers Island, different from everything else in New Zealand. Uh, so the Brothers Island's a small sort of uh, clump of rocks in the northeast of the Cook Strait region. Ironically, this population is only about 10 kilometres from another population on Stevens Island, uh, and yet apparently a, a completely different species. So we really explored this, this question of how different the Brothers Island Tuatara is to everything else, and we do find that it's very different from other Tuatara populations. But we find there's sort of a cluster in the north and a cluster in the sort of western Cook Strait, and then Brothers Island Tuatara seems to be something different. Now, why it's different, we don't know. It could be that that's just been a small insular population for a very long time, or, and this is what I kind of wonder now, could it be the last remnant population of a lineage of Tuataras that used to occur across the South Island of, of New Zealand? Now, we know that in many other species, whether it be robins or blue duck or a number of other plants and animals, that there is often a genetic split or what we call disjunction, separation between animals and plants that are found in the north island of New Zealand and the south island of New Zealand, and that often that split coincides with the formation of Cook Strait or perhaps even earlier. And I would like to know with Tuatara whether North Brothers Island Tuatara show genetic affinities to Tuatara in the South Island, and the only way to approach that would be to do some ancient DNA work, which we haven't done yet, but it's certainly something we would like to do in the future. Now, speaking of ancient mysteries for you to solve. You have become very famous as the person who has most recently gone searching for the Loch Ness Monster. Can you tell me how you went about doing that and what you found? That was a lot of fun, I'll be honest. But it was an opportunity to tell people about a new technology called environmental DNA, which I'm pretty passionate about, to be fair. So environmental DNA is really quite a simple concept. So it's, if you like, the detritus of life as we move through our environment we shed pieces of ourselves, whether it be hairs, bits of skin, and of course, you know, we're excreting into the environment also. And so, if you like, our environment is full of these trace elements uh, of the things that live there. Now, whether it be in water or in soil, uh, you can extract that DNA and you can get a relatively quick snapshot of the species that were present in a particular area within a reasonable time frame. So the DNA doesn't last for forever and ever. It might be a few days, it might be a few weeks uh, in water, uh, depending on the temperature. So our idea with the Loch Ness Monster Project was that we would go to Loch Ness and we would sample water and we would describe the biodiversity of Loch Ness. And if there happened to be anything big, scaly and reptilian swimming around in it, which, you know, the mists claimed there was, then we thought that we'd have a reasonable shot at detecting it. Now, of course, fast forward two years worth of work and um, our expectations were upheld. There wasn't anything big, scaly or reptilian found in our samples, but we did describe 3,000 other species in that block. And so really what that project was about was, yes, um, it was a bit of fun getting people excited about the idea of hunting for monsters, but it was really a great way to showcase the power of environmental DNA for understanding our natural world. And, and we use this technology now regularly here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, to, to understand uh, how our marine systems are changing over time, where the marine protected areas work to, to survey for 
alien bioinvasive species to detect species that are critically endangered and hard to find, like Kākāpō and Takahei. We're also starting a project, where I hope, soon uh, to go looking for evidence of the southern Kokako, which uh, hasn't been seen now for decades, but of course there are still encounters where people claim to have heard or, or even seen the bird. And so we're starting to think, well, maybe we could use environmental DNA to go looking for that. So the Loch Monster Project, yep, good fun, amazing publicity. I don't know if it's changed my life, but it certainly has changed the way I think about how we communicate science. And I, I'm not sure I'm ever likely to recapitulate that, but um, I'm very pleased that I did it, actually. And you're involved in another search at the moment, which is just kicking off looking for evidence of COVID-19 in wastewater. Yep, so they are searching for monsters, if you like. So the, the basic premise there was that we had started doing this environmental DNA work. We'd been we'd also been approached, um, actually through the Tuatara genome work, to work with a group in Denmark who were interested in looking at what's in our sewage, with a particular view to understanding the levels of antimicrobial resistance that occurred in that, and also to get an idea of virology and those sorts of things. You know, what diseases are present in particular parts of the world? And so we had Dunedin as one of those exemplar sites. And that started three years ago now. And so when COVID-19 emerged, we recognised relatively early on that our regular sewage sampling may be a way for us to detect COVID-19. And also as a surveillance tool to predict when we were likely to have community eruptions. And so we're working now with ESR and they lead this project and they're rolling this now out to multiple sites around the country to test its effectiveness. I think the short answer here is that we know it works. There's international studies that now show this works pretty well. So I'd really like us to be getting into less of an R&D sort of concept and more into a actual operationalise it. But, you know, we're, we're making progress. And we know from the Dean samples taken just before the lockdown and then through the lockdown that COVID-19 was detectable in our sewage, say, in late March, early April, and then as the lockdown moves through, it disappears uh, as cases disappeared here in Dunedin. And, you know, Dunedin didn't have a, a huge flurry of cases. I, I think we probably peaked at about 70 or 80 cases. And we're surveying uh, sewage uh, from one site, uh, one day a week. And we were able to detect uh, COVID during the first two, three weeks of lockdown in a city of about 100,000. So it's actually pretty sensitive. I'm pretty optimistic about that. You know, so some people were unsure why I was uh, going looking for monsters. So just to be clear, I was not looking for monsters. I was surveying the biodiversity of Loch Ness to show the power of it all, which is going to change the way that we monitor our environment going forward. And if I've if I've got a sort of a message, our natural world's precious. Aotearoa New Zealand is unique. It's a jewel in terms of our biodiversity globally. And we have a responsibility to manage and look after that. Uh, but first, in order to be able to manage something, you actually have to understand, you have to be able to quantify what you've got so that you know that what, you, what you're gaining or what you're losing. And we haven't done a particularly good job at that. But I think new genetics, like environmental DNA, stands poised to absolutely transform the way we as scientists and indeed as citizen scientists go about documenting a natural world. And so one of the things I think is going to be really, really, really cool in the next five or ten years is that people will be able to buy devices They'll be cheap, they'll be incredibly powerful, they'll be able to plug them into their phones and they're going to be able to play, you know, iNaturalist uh, with DNA sequences, figure out what's in their environment. Is the water safe to swim in? 
It's a salad bar full of Campylobacter. I mean, these sorts of things will be at our fingertips, and I think that's going to result in an avalanche of new information that's going to help us better understand and appreciate our natural world, and I'm really looking forward to that. Thanks, Neil. Neil Gemmell is from the University of Otago, and he's the winner of the 2020 Hutton Medal. You can hear Neil talking about CRISPR-Cas9, gene drives and the Trojan female technique in a longer version of this interview on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us as a podcast on your favourite podcast app and stay in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter where we are RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. I'll be back next week, but for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marier. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.